Hi, you're now listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by C4 and ACRAF with me, Susan Onyango. This is one part of the thematic contents, Elements of the Earth, that we have rolled out in April in light of Earth Day. This episode will highlight the link between trees, forests, and their roles in regulating water supply for surrounding communities. Joining us from Indonesia is Annie Nawir. Annie is a forestry socioeconomics and policy scientist in CIFO's Sustainable Landscape and Livelihood Program. And we are also joined by Malesu Maibo from Kenya. Malesu is an agricultural engineering expert and leads the Water Management Unit at Wild Agroforestry's East and Southern Africa region. So I have a question for both of you. And um, I'll start with you, Annie. What is the link between trees, forests, and water from your perspective? Okay, hi, thank you for inviting me in this interview. So yeah, uh, I would like to explain based on the experience in our research project under the Canopy project. So we have been working on a different forest landscape in Indonesia in which the interconnection between trees, forests and water has been quite significant. So uh, I would like to give some uh, example or illustrations about the link between tree, forest and water from our research project, uh, particularly from the one of the pro project sites in Java Cultural Heartland of Yogyakarta. Uh, this is one of our project site. So we have been working in a particular mosaic forest landscapes where the population density is quite high and there's been an intensive interaction between land utilization for food and gas crops, timber and non-timber forest products under different agroforestry practices. There is an interesting interrelation, you know, a link of cause and effects that goes both ways between the above ground landscape and the underground landscape. So I think this is quite unique in this part of uh, our research project site. So apparently there is a complex underground river system as part of the karst ecosystem with the abundance underground water resources that have not been utilized optimally. Uh, importantly, actually, to help the you know more intensive agroforestry practice uh, managed by the local community, which is are uh, you know these are located above the ground, and commonly is been relying on the surface water of river system. So just to add on the context here, that our research location is located in Gunung Kidul district, which is very. Uh, has been very well known as one of the driest area in Java Island, in which limestones are dominating, you know, most of the land and soil structure. So I think that's that's how the link between you know the vegetations above the ground uh, landscape and then the underground landscapes, and how the water actually could uh, accelerate, you know, more intensive agriculture practice uh, above the ground. Thank you very much, Annie. And um, what happens when this ecosystem is damaged? We'll go back to Malesu after you respond to that. Okay, so this ecosystem actually uh, has been formed for a two, about two million years ago. Yeah, even you know the human has been created on Earth uh, through the process what we call the karst 
fortifications. It's quite a mouthful of words. So what we could see in our project site, this uh, watershed has a typical hydrological condition as a result of the soluble rock distinguishing from the common watershed in most of the regions in Indonesia. Yeah. So here, the cars act as a giant sponge, absorbing water during the rainy season and releasing it slowly during the dry season, which, you know, provide water for a continuing agriculture and agroforestry practices. Yeah. And actually, there's a lot of biodiversity value, you know, in, in this underground landscape. So the carves ecosystem and also, you know, the related flora and fauna has been adopted to the conditions uh, with no pigment at all. And also when they're with very, very minor uh, sunlight. Uh, and then they have been adopted so and evolving in, in developing their sensor to navigate them in the darkness. So uh, there is a inseparable uh, kind of a uh, link between the underground and the, uh, the above ground landscape but the deforestations at the above ground has led to the erosion and also the stripping of the land uh, containing the valuable topsoil and causing part of the car system to collapse so at the present condition, there are about 50% along this watershed that we've been uh, focusing on as our uh, research uh, unit of analysis as included as a critical lens. So at least there are two main challenges. Yeah? The first is the deforestation and loss of vegetation at the upper ground of you know, uh, karst rocks and the topsoil. And then uh, this has been fragile to be dissolved during the rainy season. And because in the cart attribute system, there are so many rocky sinkholes. And then the deforestation uh, has uh, bring the loss of the soil above the grounds uh, into uh, the complex river system at the underground landscape. And the second challenge is about the pollutions, the underground river water system because of the pollutions happening above the ground. For example, from sewage, agriculture waste, and garbage dump into the sinkholes that also polluted the water and blocks the underground channels. So for example, the main uh, impact would be like during the heavy storm in late 2017, and the blocking has caused devastating flooding in the normally dry Gunung Kidul district. And this has destroyed the agroforestry field, you know, belong to the local community in which they are relying on this uh, field uh, to grow teak, bamboo, and also uh, other food crops. So I think, I think that's the main impact. Right, thank you. And now we'll come to Malesu. Tell us from where you sit, what is the link between trees, forests, and water? Thank you. From where we sit in terms of water management, we always look at land use in a number of partitions. And these partitions are based on the different land use types. And if you look at what we call the global water partitioning, which implies to how when you receive 100% rainfall, 
on a given landscape, the way the water divides, you know, how much of the water infiltrates into the soil, how much of the water evaporates back into the atmosphere, how much of that water runs off into the rivers and the lake systems, that partitioning or the division of the, the rainfall depends on the land use. Now, the global water partitioning you know, indicator that we use is that you should have the highest proportion of land under forest and grassland as well as wetland. In fact, forests are the ones we usually give the highest priority in terms of a landscape because that is the only way that you can actually capture the rain for when it falls. It first, the forest is very good at intercepting the rainfall. It then allows the water to seep slowly into the soil, as well as allowing uh, the water to go deeper into the groundwater systems because of the root uh, system that the, the trees uh, provide. So therefore, you know, there's the forest followed by the grasslands, the wetlands. Then in terms of um, the least uh, land use that can actually facilitate that process, you find that it is the cropland which facilitates the least connection between, you know, the, 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 the rainfall system and the water system. So my point here is that the most important proportion of land that should be left on the landscape should be left to the forest land, followed by the grasslands, the wetlands, and the least proportion should be the, the cropland. So therefore, the first thing that we do in most of all the work that we do is that we go to a site and using GIS and remote uh, sensing techniques, we actually characterize the, the site so that we would be able to actually look at the land use and be able to apportion how much cropland exists, how much grassland, how much shrubland and tree cover we have within a given location. So that will give us at least a few of how water partitions within that landscape. So therefore, that would help us then to start to plan on if we find, for instance, that the tree cover proportion is very low, then we'll try to look at ways in which we can increase the tree cover so that we can sort of increase that water partitioning ability of the landscape to be able to capture most of the, the rainwater and utilize that, you know, to improve the ecosystems, both the above and the below ground, you know, water systems can actually be improved by having a good uh, land use uh, proportion of each type of the land use types I've just described. Okay, thank you. Okay, Malesu, one more question for you. Perhaps you could tell us more about the work on water harvesting in Africa and why this is important. In terms of um, water harvesting, when you look at the agricultural systems in Africa, what you note is that most of agriculture is practiced by smallholder farmers. In fact, you find that the Africa's rural population makes up 
nearly 60% of the population or up to about 740 million people. And most of these are actually trapped in poverty. And they are the ones who are contributing up to 90% of the food production in some of the sub-Saharan African countries. So therefore, one of the main constraints that we find is the issue of uh, water, especially in the drylands. We find that the farmers are susceptible to variability in the distribution, as well as the intensity of rainfall. So therefore, if you do not intervene in terms of trying to capture and store rainwater, either in the soil, or you can actually capture and store the, the water in an, a, a storage infrastructure, as well as, of course, improving the landscapes, like I mentioned earlier, to enable the landscapes to be able to absorb most of the, the, the rainfall and then slowly release the, the water into the, you know, the river systems, as well as the lake systems within, within these landscapes. So therefore, with the constraints I've, I've mentioned in terms of water availability for crop production, and due to the fact that most of the farmers actually have removed the trees off the landscape in preference for cropping, we find that without putting deliberate rainwater harvesting techniques, like for, for instance, if I take the case of crop production, we are now practicing what we call green water harvesting, which is a way of capturing and storing soil, I mean, rainwater into the soil to enable, you know, the, the, the crop to have more moisture available for production. And there are quite a number of ways in which we have uh, been doing this, uh, mainly through in situ water harvesting techniques. And these are very simple techniques such as what we call zypits, for instance. This is a technique that was adopted from Burkina Faso in the Sahel. We use minimum tillage. Minimum tillage improves the ability of the landscape to actually capture and infiltrate the rainwater into the soil. Because if you look at the other way of plowing, where people plow, then you find that the soil is susceptible to very high rainfall intensity that we have in Africa. So that seals up the surface. And then within a short period of time, you have buildup of uh, runoff and all the soil that has been detached by the raindrop impact is carried away. And then you have a lot of erosion taking place. Therefore, uh, minimum tillage is another technique that we promote within the the agricultural landscape. Then conservation agriculture, of course, it's also another way which we try to improve or enhance the capture of rainwater into the soil to increase the productivity. So the other water harvesting things that we've been working on re relates to areas of policy research, as, as you might be aware, rainwater harvesting has not been practiced in the past in most of the African countries. However, when we looked at the policy, we found that policy in certain cases was inhibiting. So through policy, you know, research and evaluation would be able 
to identify where the gaps are and then come up with policy recommendations to improve or to mainstream rainwater harvesting activities in the different uh, countries that we are working in. The other work that we've been doing is, is on networking where we've built a number of rainwater harvesting networks at country level. Now these are communities of practice who are trained and are able to promote rainwater harvesting at the national level all the way up to the community level. The other work that we've been doing mainly is, is on capacity building. You know, due to the fact that these techniques are ignored in most of the countries, we've been trying to come up with ways in which we can train a community of practice as well as training community level uh, practitioners to actually go out and assist the communities in upscaling some of the, the rainwater harvesting technologies that we are promoting. Probably the last one is the, 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 the farm pond that we have been promoting through the Billion Dollar Business Alliance for Africa. This initiative is aimed at upscaling the rainwater harvesting farm pond. So the farm pond is a structure that is placed at the farm level where runoff is collected and then it's stored on the farm. And then irrigation systems are, are developed for smallholder irrigation to enable communities to have access to water for improving their production, even when they have you know, the, the problem of a dry spell in between. So I think in a nutshell, those are some of the uh, rainwater harvesting activities that UCRAF has been promoting across the African continent. Oh, very interesting. Are there any successes you could um, tell us about, uh, either in terms of um, at community level or at policy level? Well, like I mentioned, I, I, I would probably look at the in-situ water harvesting techniques or even looking at the, the, the conservation, you know, agriculture activities. One case in point is where we have had the upscaling of uh, farm ponds here in Kenya through the Billion Dollar Business Alliance. And we here we find that through our promotion, the government of Kenya has allocated in Kenya shillings, it's close to 3.5 billion Kenya shillings, which has been provided as, as a fund to enable communities to construct runoff ponds. And through that uh, facility, we have seen hundreds and thousands of farm ponds which have been co constructed across the mainly the eastern part of Kenya. And also through support from the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we've had a drylands development project which has been upscaling, you know, rainwater harvesting activities in Kenya, Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. Coming to conservation agriculture in Zambia, we have over 250,000 smallholder farmers who have adopted some form of conservation agriculture, which has helped to triple the current level of production, which is usually around one ton of one ton of maize per hectare. We are seeing the tripling up to about three, even to four tons of maize per hectare. So even in a year of drought, we find that the farmers that practice conservation agriculture 
are able to produce a bumper harvest, which has contributed quite significantly to the food security situation in, in Zambia, but also in the region, because they're able to actually export maize to the DRC, also to Malawi, Zimbabwe, and other neighboring countries. Thank you very much. And um, as we come to our wrap up, Annie and Malesu, could you tell us what needs to be done in order to maintain the sustainability of water resources, both from an ecological, socioeconomic and cultural aspect? Um, Annie, you could start us off. Okay, so yeah, uh, the karst landscapes in our project site has been allocated as uh, part of the UNESCO Geopark with the biggest uh, karst landscape in Southeast Asia. However, uh, there has not been uh, many research, so you could say that this is the under-research area to have a better understanding about the interrelations between what happened above the ground landscape and how it could affect the conditions and the ecosystem under the ground uh, landscape, which is uh, quite important to maintain the sustainability of the water resources. And not to mention that this has been very valuable not only for uh, supporting the intensive agriculture and agroforestry practices, but this uh, kind of ecosystem has been providing uh, sources of uh, economics uh, benefits to local community and also to the local governments through the ecotourisms. Uh, through the exploration of caves and also uh, the biodiversity fails you that have been mentioned. However, uh, I think more reforestation and conservations uh, are needed, especially above the ground landscape and also doing the intensive campaigns to enhance the understanding about uh, the uniqueness of the complex underground river system as part of this landscape. Taking into account this uniqueness of uh, the landscapes and its ecosystems uh, through our project uh, under the Canopy uh, Initiative, we have initiated the participatory action research with the local government and also local community aiming for formulating an integrated policy framework at district level. And uh, also, especially to start up, we have been developing the integrated baseline that uh, covers a different uh, aspect, including the hydrological uh, baseline, biodiversity, uh, land use, uh, socioeconomics, industrial arrangements, also the policy framework. And this are important actually uh, be because this is would be like setting the starting point, yeah. Uh, for all the stakeholders, including the community, the industry. Uh, the local uh, the local governments, uh, particularly through the regional planning agency, to uh, be able to develop the integrated development planning uh, at the landscape level, taking into account the above and the underground landscape. That should be carefully designed, uh, so complementary uh, natural-based managements could be enhanced, uh, compromising a different objective of ecotourism, agriculture, agroforestry practice, and other local priorities. So I think this, this is quite important, uh, not only for protecting 
the from the conservation's uh, point of view, but also to maintaining the sustainability of the livelihood of the local people, but also helping out the local government to have a better or improved integrated planning at the landscape level. Thank you very much. Malesu, over to you. Yes, in the case of Africa, there's need to create awareness on the importance of developing you know, integrated landscape management plans. One of the approaches that ICRAF has been using is to promote the watershed management approach. And I think that has been uh, accepted by most governments across the world, inclu including the, the G8 countries. In fact, if you were to seek funding from some of the developed countries to support watershed management activities, you find that resources are available because this is one of the approaches which has been recognized as one of the most effective ways in which the hydrological functions of landscapes can be restored. In Ethiopia, for instance, I think the government has actually put this down in their policy. It's a very strong policy where they have said any project that operates within their country has to use the watershed management approach. So this actually entails that the people who are providing the technical knowledge would come in with their, their tools and characterize the sites and be able to have a very good understanding from the outset what needs to be done, by whom, where the government comes in, where the private sector comes in, where the community comes in, and to actually involve the community and creating awareness within the community on the importance of restoring some of these uh, landscapes that have been degraded. So this kind of an approach, I think, is quite critical and making people to realize that without maintaining this kind of balance within the landscape, then this would adversely affect you know, water availability within the landscape. It also affects their livelihoods. It affects the future generation. So that is why even within ICRAF now, we are having very strong uh, approach towards this restoration agenda. It's very important that we have to critically look at how some of the landscapes that have already degraded, how can these be restored? So that is, that is very important. Thank you very much. And um, Annie and Malesu, uh, we're grateful for the insights on um, the links between trees, forests, and their role in regulating water supply for communities. That's all for um, today. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the link uh, provided. See you in the next episodes and keep safe, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>